Hello, and welcome back to the Road to Wealth podcast. This is Justin Nackpill, your host, and I'm glad to be back on today's episode. Uh, sorry for the delay. I know that um, I haven't been around uh, publishing some episodes recently. I've been taking a break personally, uh, and there's been a lot that's been happening within the finance community. We have rising interest rates. We have recently some banks on the brink of shutting down, as well as still a crazy real estate market out there. So um, maybe I'll take some time and share some thoughts on an upcoming episode. But on today's episode, I have Barbara Sloan, the esteemed author of the book Tipped, The Life-Changing Guide to Financial Freedom for Waitresses, Bartenders, Strippers, and All Other Service Industry Professionals. Uh, I met Barbara back at FinCon last year in 2022, and it was actually upon the launch of her book. And what I love is that she writes about advocating for a group of workers that we don't get highlighted in the personal finance and fire community uh, within the service industry uh, group. So we talked through her journey in the industry, and she shares her tips on what's needed to succeed and find financial independence. Um, thank you, Barbara, for coming and go pick up her book. Um, again, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a rating and review on your podcast player. So let's get to our conversation with Barbara Sloan from Tip Finance. Um, we, I, well, thank you, Barbara, for coming on. I have the esteemed author of the book Tipped, uh, Barbara Sloan, calling in all the way from New York in Manhattan. How are you, Barbara? Hi, Justin. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to chat. Oh, I know. It's, it's been way too long, way overdue. Um, she is another uh, fellow FinCon um, alum, as well as the first time we met you know, back in Orlando uh, months ago. So I'm just really happy that you're, you're here to, to come in on the Road to Wealth podcast. I love it. Yeah, Florida was Florida was a good time. It was only my second year at FinCon. How about you? How many years have you been going? That was my first. That was your first. Awesome. So exciting. Yeah. So Barbara, time. yeah, Barbara and a few others helped shepherd me through. Um, it was uh, it was very overwhelming, but you know, having you there to kind of guide me through was was awesome. And it was also during the time when you published your book, which we're going to be talking about. Yeah, it was honestly. Three, it was a few days after I published. So right. I published it just before FinCon so that I could get author copies delivered in time to go to the booth. That was like my goal uh, in publishing was to get to the author booth at FinCon. <laughs> yeah. And we met at like one of the round tables with um, our buddy, Chris, and um, I, you know, your book and, and your mission just, it, you just drew me in and, uh, you know, I, I've loved the book, which we're going to talk about. And um, I, I love this whole t- podcast tour you're on too, which is, which is awesome. Yeah. When I first discovered like kind of the personal finance space in 2016, I probably like many people in, in the personal finance or fire space, I did a deep dive for a couple of years. I listened to thousands and thousands of hours of podcasts, audio interviews, read dozens and dozens of the personal finance books. And in none of that, did I ever see someone who looked or sounded like me, somebody who had worked in the service industry or made the majority of their income from tips. And I'm just like, how is it that within this entire space and more specifically this like niche down fire community, was there nobody talking, maybe not even to me, but to people like me. And so that was really what took me to FinCon for the first time where I was like, there's got to be a reason why no one's talking to this group of people. And it's not a small group of people. There's over 5.5 million people, you know, working solely for tips. And it's in the second largest employment sector in the United States. So we're talking about a huge group of people that have been really left out of the world of wealth building and out of financial literacy. 
Yeah, I, I've always felt with like, you know, the audience that we speak to, especially personal finance nerds, you know, there's always this narrative around W2 work, um, entrepreneurship, but there is this, you know, this demographic of people who you highlight, you know, over 5 billion people that just don't get addressed, Barbara. And, you know, I want to start with, you know, you, with you, like, what was money like growing up or when, when you were around in Detroit? I know you're from the Midwest. Um, how did that make an impact? And I'm just curious if we can start from there. Yeah. Yeah. So my background from Detroit is, you know, we grew up low to middle income. My dad was an assembly line worker at the, you know, car company, um, Ford Motor Company, part of the big three UAW raised. Um, My mom was a stay at home mom. She was disabled, um, raised three kids. She moved out when I was 12. Life got real different after then. Um, You know, so we didn't grow up with a ton Um, I wouldn't say we were below the poverty line, but we were, you know, we were still getting clothes donated to us. And there were times that government cheese rolled into our, into our pantry, um, which I got to say government cheese is delicious. (laughs) 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 Um, But so, you know, the upbringing was scarcity mindset. Debt was modeled for me. um, But I'll also say that homeownership was modeled for me which I think was a really big asset to me. Like seeing somebody in my family, seeing people in my family own a home was really powerful. That was a powerful modeling example for me. And it gave me the delusion that I could own a home at a really young age. I ended up purchasing the house I grew up in at the age of 19 after my dad had passed away. Um, Now, did I do it in an intelligent way? No, I paid more than twice the price that the previous owners had purchased it for only months prior. So, um, you know, financial literacy was not a part of my upbringing. We did not talk about money. I learned those lessons the hard way. It, it's interesting too, because you, you go into the book about, you know, that childhood home, just the emotion, emotional decision behind that. Um, and then I, I want you to also share just like, you know, cause it had to go through some rehabs, right? Um, what, what was that process like? I know you went through a whole gamut of explaining that in the book. Yeah. So, you know, I think for me, when my dad passed away, um, you know, we couldn't afford a plot or a tombstone. And I felt as though I had kind of like robbed him of a legitimate death and Hmm. restoring the house that I grew up in was kind of my way of honoring him. And so I took out, you know, loans and I maxed out over 10 credit cards to renovate the house as a way to honor him. And I put myself in a really terrible financial situation. So like, A year later, I remember selling the house and moving from Detroit to Los Angeles, where I really started to get into the service industry. But that was out of a necessity for cash because I had creditors chasing me. Mm -hmm. And I was really angry at a system for letting me get really in debt at such a young age. What was that first service job that you got? Um, One of, I mean... I had a paper route when I was 10. And so I remember getting like cash tips, um, like around the holidays for that. And then I worked in A&W when I was in high school. I don't know if people know A&W, but it's like a root beer, hot dog. Uh, the waitresses go around on roller skates, car hop style. Um, I did that in high school with a bunch of other jobs. Um, but when I moved out to LA, I was, I was doing everything. I was waitressing. I was bartending. I was dancing. I was answering random Craigslist ads for cash. I was doing cater waitering, private home serving. I mean, you name it. I, my, my service industry career is, has probably a thousand titles on it. <laughs> well, it's very vast. And I think, you know, having that, 
that notion of having that industry, it's, it, it does give you some flexibility of time. Um, I'm curious, like why you were always drawn to that? Like what, you know, what, what was it about quote unquote traditional work versus, you know, being in the service industry? What was that, that, that dynamic like? I mean, I think there's, for me, when I, when I trace that back, I, I trace it back to two things. I think one, I came out as gay when I was 15 and two, losing a parent at a young age. Yeah. When you lose a parent at a young age, you just realize how short and precious life is and you want to do things that, you know, have meaning behind it. And I loved getting to meet new people. I loved that the work that I was doing was fun. Um, I liked that I got to talk about, you know, books and food and wine and love and travel for a living. And when you are also coming out at 15 and you realize that you've spent a number of years not being your authentic self, you really want to show up in an authentic way in what you do. And I will say that the service industry is one of the industries that really celebrates people for being who they are. And so I just loved all of the aspects of that. I loved getting to be a little extra, getting to use my personality, getting to talk about really worldly things um, on a daily basis, the quick access to cash, the schedule flexibility to go to a beach on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, I loved all of it. Yeah. I, when I look upon my personal experience, you know, back in the years doing, you know, service work, um, you know, like one of my first service jobs was like s selling ice cream, right? Very small minimum wage. Um, but I brought a lot of my personality, even though I was young and, you know, immature during that time, like you're right. Like I didn't have to fit the mold of a corporate employee that I am now. Right. And I think that's the beauty of, you know, what this industry provides. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of upside and there's a lot of opportunity, but a big part of the reason that I have my mission and my book and my coaching practice is because this, this employee sector is very vulnerable, they age into the most economically disadvantaged population in the country. They are twice as likely to experience poverty and homelessness. Um, as an industry, they often don't track their income. And when you don't track your income, you aren't going to be on the receiving end of benefits that are based on your income. So, for mm -hmm. example, unemployment, Social Security. Social Security is a terrifying one. Um, it's one of the most important financial safety nets that we as a country provide. And, the, you know, our government started it because they recognized the fact that people were falling between the cracks of 401ks and pensions. And so they created Social Security as, a, as an additional layer of a safety net. But the only people who still fall th through this crack are service industry workers. I think in 2020, the average Social Security check for people who claim their income in full was $20,000. Now, when you think about that in the context of somebody who may be not claiming their income in full doesn't and doesn't understand the implications of that decision, then those people are retiring and being expected to live on less than $10,000, $15,000 a year while they're not able to work. It's terrifying. You know, that's those statistics are unreal, Barbara. And, you know, what, what we're talking about right now is your book, right? We, we are in your history, right? Uh, the book tipped. And you firsthand know what this is. Do you recall, like, when you even when you're currently doing your uh, research around your industry, just how vast and how deep rooted this can be? Um, we're going to get into the demographics of it, but I'm curious, like, when you were doing your research for this as well, you know, what were some of those statistics that kind of are still mind-boggling to you? I mean, I think, you know, 
I always say that this industry has really terrible PR. And when I look at the two industries that I think of when I think of like when you're growing up, your parents tell you don't become a stripper and don't become a garbage man. Right. And, but the waste management industry has really turned things around for themselves. They got some good PR. Now, when people talk about this profession, it's like, oh, those people get to know all the neighborhood dogs. They make a great wage. They have good benefits. They get to work out. They're home by three o'clock. Like the conversation has changed. And when I think about the service industry and the conversations surrounding that industry, I can only highlight the fact that two thirds of the industry is women. And that when it comes Mm. to industries that are focused on women, teachers, healthcare, the service industry, we do not do a good job of advocating for the benefits and changes necessary in those industries. Whereas in waste management, it's mostly men. That's, that's crazy. I mean, yeah, I think, and I want to, I want you to dive into these economics because, you know, for those that, you know, listen to these podcasts, or maybe you have a traditional W2 work, maybe you do like going to the bar or going to the restaurant right on the weekends with your family, but you never really put yourselves into the shoes of these people that are um, helping the economy, you know, and, and I love, you know, going to new restaurants and, and going to my local bar and like chatting up because, you know, those are you know real people, but we never put ourselves into the economic conditions that they're in. Um, what you talk a lot about in the book too, Barbara, is around just like the differences of uh uh, what the minimum wage is, you know, the sub-minimum wage. And I want you to kind of talk about that um, in, in, into the demographics of what many people don't even know about, if, if yeah. you can share. So I mentioned two-thirds of the industry is women. I think it's also important to point out that over 25% of the people in the industry are parents. Over 25% of the people in the industry are have a minority status of some sort. So um, we're already talking about a group of people that, you know, may have additional hurdles. And so when you look deeper into what the systems look like for a tipped worker, they're the only industry that's held to an entirely different sub-minimum wage than every other industry. So tipped workers, they have a sub-minimum wage of $2.13 per hour, whereas the federal sub-minimum or the federal normal minimum wage is $7.25. Now this changes at a state level. Um, Additionally, this is an industry that is, 90% mom and pop businesses. And so when you are a small business, the government allows you, and also you are unable to provide the same level of benefits as a larger corporation that has economies of scales and other tax advantages and whatnot. And so those mom and pop businesses aren't able to provide things. And it's not because they're evil employers, right? Like I am not at all vilifying the owners of these establishments, our communities and our economies rely on these businesses. So in a way, us tipping is a subsidy and a benefit that we get to participate in the economy and in the, in, in the financials of these businesses that help lift up our communities. But they do not provide 401ks. They do not provide health insurance. They do not provide paid time off policies. They do not house or staff an HR representative, which would help somebody sort through those benefits or even set up automation. One of the most, the two most common ways that Americans build wealth is through their 401k and their primary residence. 401k is off the table. Primary residence is even harder for people who are not tracking their income, don't feel that they can you know, save for a down payment. And because they're not claiming all of their income, don't have access to traditional lending. So 
there's all of these systemic hurdles that this industry has to overcome. And that starts with educating people about what the realities are for those tips workers, which is why I'm so thankful that you're having me on your podcast, because I think a lot of people don't understand that these workers, even if they are in a state, let's say, for instance, where their state requires them to have a paid time off policy, right? In your head, you're like, oh no, I live in a state where paid time off is provided to everybody. Okay. Well, for tipped workers, that is not a reality. Cash flow wise. So let's say that they do take a day off and their employer's like, cool, cool, cool. I'm going to pay you for the day that you took off. First of all, they pay them based off of that $2.13 subminimum wage. So let's say that that day is, that's $17, right? That's your paid day off. Not to mention, if you're in most industry, most service-based establishments, there's some forced claiming already happening. So that paycheck is eaten. That $2.13 is eaten completely by taxes from your forced claiming portion of your cash tips. So you don't get a paycheck and you don't ever cash flow wise ever receive a paid time, paid time off or paid day off. So on the back end of what that looks like for people in the industry, it means sacrificing wellness because you're less likely to go to a doctor's appointment or to take a day off for any generalized health, which means you're putting off or delaying your own, your own healthcare. Um, so those are just, those are just some of the, the systemic problems that this industry is dealing with. It, I, I was baffled cause I have a lot of friends that, you know, they're, they're hustle. We talked a lot about the hustle culture, right. In the service industry, just managing multiple jobs. You know, I have friends and family that, you know, they may have a, a restaurant job and they may drive for Uber eats. They may, you know, do Amazon stuff on the side. And it's just, they're constantly hustling. And, you know, because the you know, majority of their income is variable, um, probably by a sub minimum wage as well. Um, we never really think about just how much more challenging, you know, operating through that life. And what I love about your book is that it's not only a framework, but it's an empowerment to them to navigate through that. Um, I'm wondering for you, as you were writing it, um, and because you had such a vast history, what did you want the objective to be with this book? I mean, I think the hard part for me in writing this book was knowing that there's no way I can help everybody. I can't speak to people who are below the poverty line. You cannot budget your way out of poverty. It's just not possible. You can't strategize your way out of poverty. And so part of me was like, oh, well, if I can't speak to everyone, I shouldn't speak to anybody. But, you know, then I realized that was that was a disservice because nobody's talking to this industry. So even if I can only help a portion, I just wanted to start the conversation for people in an industry that don't have good modeling, that don't have language, that maybe aren't being told that like, listen, hey, if you can remember the difference between four different types of red wine and four different types of white wine and four different types of whiskeys, then you're smart enough to invest. And yeah, some things are going to be harder for you like setting up your own benefit system and figuring out how to invest for yourself and managing a a pay time off policy for yourself and tracking your income and budgeting. And yeah, these things may be harder for you, but you can totally do it. So I think that to me, that that was the really important part of the message of the book is just giving people hope and then letting them know like, yeah, it's, you don't have to be perfect to do this and you don't have to be a totally different person to budget. You don't have to live a different life to get your, get your financial shit together. 
Yeah, I love that too, Barbara, because the one thing that you you mentioned, right? Like a lot of us service industry professionals that are out there, yes, they can name the 12 different bourbons that's on the shelf, right? And discuss different tasting notes and, and mm-hmm. whatnot. And I feel like what you taught in this book is that even though you're not labeled a money person, right? A lot of the skill sets you have with memorizing different things and, and being, you know, anticipatory and memorizing a lot of things, all those skills are transferable where you can leverage it into a money type of model. Yeah. I like to say everything that I needed to know to own and run a multi-million dollar business, I learned in the service industry. There's so many skills that you learn. You learn sales, you learn time management, you learn back of the envelope math, you learn how to problem solve because you are dealing with the general public. And that is, that is a tough skill set. You're learning interpersonal skills and how to manage your resources, like your management, like your coworkers, maybe like your your busboys or your barbacks or whatever additional staff that you're having to manage. Like you are a highly skilled, skilled person. You know, the, the, the subtitle, I don't want to call it the subtitle, but, um, I think the service industry is so broad, right? Or you, you know, when you think of service industry, you think probably your local coffee shop or restaurant tour, but you go as far as, you know, strippers and more of your mis- risque and taboo type titles. I love the fact that you're addressing everybody and not just limiting to just one specific demographic. Um, have you received any feedback from like those under quote unquote taboo industries or, or feedback from, from those folks about like, yeah, I know, mean, I think yeah. for me, it's really important to, to, clarify that no one should feel shame in what they do for a living. And so the service industry and the sex work industry have a lot of overlap. For me, you know, I worked at in club atmospheres. I was a fetishing kink worker. I worked um, at strip clubs. You know, I mean, I've had some of those experiences myself, but I've also never drove an Uber and I've never been a hairstylist, but I know that those industries are really important and also subject to a lot of the same problems of having that fluctuating income of not being able to, you know, maybe know the best accounts that they should be utilizing in order to build a path to financial freedom. So it was really important to me to include all of the industries. And I love the fact that I think people love to hear about the more salacious side of the industry. And so I loved bringing some of that salacious energy and some of my salacious stories to the book because it creates a fun way for people to learn about their finances. Definitely. And, you know, there's one story that you talked about, but it's related to a lot of the frameworks we as personal finance you know, enthusiasts talk about, whether it be budgeting or investing. But this was on the topic of emergency funds. And I want you to talk about that one story where you categorize both your oh fuck funds and your fuck up funds. Um, I think it was uh, regarding your money clipper, like a bottle of wine or something like that. Do you mind sharing a little there's, bit of that? There's so many of those stories where yeah. I felt like The first thing I'll say about emergency funds is that you're in an industry where there is an automatic power imbalance, right? You are serving somebody who is going to have requests. And if you are totally reliant on somebody's individual tip, then you are less likely to be able to keep yourself safe and advocate for yourself. And so the emergency fund acts as that barrier. If you have money at home and you know that you can pay your rent with or without this tip, then you are far more likely to be like, to put those healthy boundaries in place where you're like, actually, this is not representative of my employer or my establishment or the jobs, you know, that I'm supposed to be providing here. So you can, you can go ahead and get the hell out of here, or I'm going to go talk to my manager about this. So the emergency fund is really important for people to be able to protect themselves in general. Um, For me, I had to learn this the hard way so many times. Like I remember I was working in an Irish pub 
and I was waitressing. And this was the type of establishment where you kept all of the money for all of your tables throughout your entire shift. And then at the end, you know, you did your, you cleared out your bank with the house. And so I remember I had a bill filled with all of my money for all of my tables and I left it, I think in the bathroom or something. And it had thousands of dollars in it. And I never found that billfold again. And I made the situation so much worse than it had to because I was dependent on having that money. I had no backup plan. And so, you know, I blamed my manager. I blamed my coworkers. I blamed my guests. I blamed everyone but myself for being in that situation. And, you know, obviously your establishment can help you out in certain ways. Like, oh, maybe they can you know, discount the food or discount the bill that you're going to owe at the end of the night because things happen. But ultimately protecting myself was really important and knowing that like, if this is the career that I want to be in, then I have to put some safety nets in place for myself because I'm going to screw up and it's okay. And, you know, you need to be able to make sure that I, I like to also give this example. Like I remember bringing in some things the wrong way. And so mm. I can go and ask my manager to clear that off, or I can just go ahead and pay for it and not have to deal with my manager and not have to utilize that favor or that resource. So the emergency fund serves serves you in a lot of ways. It's peace of mind. It's an insurance policy for you and your career. It's an insurance policy against your own little mistakes. It's an, you know, so that's where I say like the oh fuck fund and the fuck you fund, right? You want to be able mm-hmm. to have money to say, oh shit, I need, I need to cover this mistake and fuck you, I'm out. Because in this industry, we do have bad actors. There are people who, you know, may not run clean establishments and you have to be able to have the ability to walk away from some of those, those establishments if you need to. And I think part of, part of the bad PR in this industry is that you can walk away from these jobs so easily. So that's where some of this more transient, um, Mm -hmm. you know, understanding of the industry comes from is the fact that like, when there are no employer provided benefits, you are far less likely to be like, Oh, should I maybe just take a day off or take, take a beat and think about how I'm, what the repercussions of my actions are, or I can just like walk out right now and never come back, you know? And so that's the reality for a lot of people in this industry. It's such a different dynamic, Barbara, compared to those that work in corporate America where they have quote unquote golden handcuffs. Right. And I feel like this is the, such a great benefit for those that, um, maybe they do want some more flexibility. Maybe they want to be able to, you know, work on their passion. And, you know, we talk about folks that want to do barista fire and want to be a barista because those are great jobs because, you know, it provides flexibility and you can bring, you know, different aspects of your life and personality to the job. Yeah. Schedule flexibility is huge. Access to cash is huge. You want to, if you are going for barista fight, it's great for shouldering sequence of return risk. Or if you wanted to get into real estate to be able to save up like, you know, for some, some investment property, you can have independent contractor status where you can set up a SEP IRA or write off your health insurance. You can back into an income number. There's so, so many positives to this industry. Um, but you have to know how to set up these systems and you have to know how to keep yourself protected because the other side of it is that it's a hard industry. It's a hard industry on your body, but there's also a lot of industries that are hard on your body. I'm in another one. Construction's hard on your body. Any physical job is hard on your body when you do it for 40, 50 years. Um, but part of protecting yourself means that you don't work to burnout, that you don't work to exhaustion, that you're not working 80 hours a week because it's unsustainable. And it it took you many years to, you know, and and you're financially independent now, correct, Barbara? Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it took you so many lessons, if you will, and different careers, um, you know, and, and jobs to get to this point. If you're speaking to 20 year old Barbara, you know, what what top three things of advice would you give give her financially or even just in life to get you to the point that where it got you now? Yeah, I mean, I think if you had asked 20 year old Barbara, um, you know, what financial independence meant or financial freedom meant, I would have just thought that it meant you were rich. But now I understand that financial freedom and financial independence is control over your finances and control over your choices. And if someone had came and told me at 20 years old, here, read this book, follow all of the advice, set up these systems, and you can achieve financial independence, you can retire at a early age, I would have jumped at that chance. Mm -hmm. I didn't know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I just kept putting off and I was like, oh, I will, I will, I will worry about that when I get a real job. I will worry about that when I make more money or I like my job. I can work, I can work forever when you don't realize what an aging body feels like. <laughs> you don't realize the other things that are going to come up. It's funny, Brenda. I'm going through my own physical <laughs> ailments right now with physical therapy. And you're right, Barbara. Like the old, like the older you get, you want choice. And I feel like the framework that you put in um, is is applicable to everybody. But I feel like this book is the the right language for those that you know those 5.5 billion people that you mentioned that that are out there in the world. Um, you know, I, I'm curious for you. You know, as a esteemed author of a of a of a best selling book, um, what were some of the hardest parts of writing the book? I mean, I think getting over that hurdle of like I have to speak to everybody. Yeah. Like, as individuals, our story is impactful. That's how people learn is through story. So when I kind of just got over that imposter syndrome, and I kind of got over realizing the fact that I, I can't help everybody and that's okay. Then I, then I was able to settle into more of like, there's going to be people that learn from my story. And as long as I'm honest and authentic and show up with the knowledge that I've learned so far, then I've done, I've done as much as I can do. I've taken it as far as I can take it. Um, you know, I learned a lot of lessons the hard way. Um, like when I was uploading my book to Amazon for the first time, I accidentally hit the 18 plus because I'm like, oh, well, it has stripper in the title. Like maybe people under 18. Well, apparently I should not have done that. That like kills me on the algorithm. Why? Um, I don't know. Amazon won't promote your book because it thinks it might contain erotica or something. And I'm like, oh, right. So that was one of my big mistakes. Um, I hired a, this is kind of a funny story. I hired someone from um, England to design my book cover. Well, she didn't understand what U.S. currency looked like. So when she designed my tip jar with like currency, like my pennies and dimes were the same size and coins were the wrong colors and thickness. And I was just like, oh, this is, this is hilarious. Like you would never know this until. <laughs> and you're seeing a tip jar now, you know, for folks that are out there, you know, I'm going to put the Amazon link, you know, it's a, it's a lovely picture of a, a tip jar with some American currency in it. But yeah, like I'm just, it's, it's, it's amazing now because people just, you know, go to their coffee shop and, you know, it's either a percentage now or a dollar tip. But yeah, that's, that's so funny that, you know, you, <laughs> it just didn't connect. Yeah. And I think with the iPad transition this past year, people are having a hard time with tipping. It's, it's a, it's a yeah. tough conversation to be having 
everyone's feeling the pinch with inflation and the economy and, and to see that iPad turning towards you in situations where maybe you don't feel like you were used to seeing a tip jar. Maybe you weren't aware that that jar was existing on the, on the counter before you. And now it's just maybe more in your face. Um, I think it's, it's causing a bigger conversation to be had about the value we place on this industry and these individuals. And so it's been tough to witness that conversation, but I hope that people Mm -hmm. understand that, you know, not that, you don't have to tip in every situation where that screen flips around, right? Like, let's say you're at a coffee shop. I always like to say tip on service, not on product. So if you're buying a bottle of water, you do not have to tip on a bottle of water. Do not feel pressured. You can select no tip. You can set select custom tip and hit a penny. As consumers, we have to be engaged. And so, you know, it, if something's not sitting right with you or you see a bad actor who's iPads flipping around and it's 40, 50 and 75% tips are, are the automatic, uh, you know, displays, then we need to be having conversations to get that back in line so that we can protect the workers and not just have people saying, I'm done with tipping. It's getting out of hand, you know, because that's dangerous. Yeah. What I love about the service industry is that it's, you know, even in the convenience of life that we're in now, it may seem transactional, but what the service industry provides, Barbara, in my opinion, is not only experience, but there's engagement, but it's an art, right? It's not, there's not, there's no, you know, black and white parts of it. There's a personality, there's color to it. And I, I think, you know, your, your book is outlining the fact that, you know, there are many people out there that are bringing their best art to their job and not, you know, and, and need a, a safety net and a framework to build wealth for themselves. And, and you know, I thank you for that. Yeah. And I just also think it's really important to highlight that when, we are consumers in service-based establishments. We are seeking out luxury goods. If we don't have the resources to in, enter a service-based establishment, there are other options. If we need coffee or alcohol or food, we can go to the grocery store. We can go have a picnic or a potluck situation, right? So we're not entitled to anyone's free labor. And when we enter those service-based establishments, it is a social contract that we are engaging in that we will be tipping within the range. Um, and yeah, so I think it's it's really important to remember that it's a luxury service that we're engaging in. I love it. I love it. So uh, with that, Barbara, I'd like us to transition to um, our famous lightning round here. Let's um, do it. So I hope you're ready. Um, so the first two questions are pretty easy. Um, in your budget or spending plan, if you have one, what is the category that you and your partner spend the least amount on per month? The budget that the line item that we spend the least amount on mm-hmm. clothing, hand, 100%. Clothing. We don't buy any clothing. Okay. All right. For what two women, op- I'm very proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> that that's awesome. That's awesome. Then, you know, th- that's been a that, that's been a, a topic that people have talked about. But now, on the opposite end, what do you and your partner spend the most money on per month? So, the most money is by far food. Okay. Um, as somebody who loves this industry, we go out a lot. We spend a ton of money on like fresh produce, on you know, organic products. On, I mean, just the amount of money we spend on food is, is shameful. <laughs> well, you, as Ramit Sadie always says, you know, you should spend on what you love. And, uh, in a, in a city that you live in, in Manhattan, I, I don't disagree with you. I'd probably do the same. Um, okay. As someone for me who loves dining out and because you've also been a, um, 
uh, you know, waitressing and, and servicing many people in the restaurant industry. What are some qualities of a good diner or guest? Qualities of a good diner or guest. I would say somebody who is engaged, right? You, you're there to have an experience. So be a part of that experience, you know, be attentive when your providers are talking to you and asking, you know, you what you'd like. Um, be, be engaged, be curious and, and be polite. Okay. Um, what in your past in, in the many different, uh, jobs you've had, what was the most memorable tip that you ever received? Oh, um, so somebody gave me a small Viking ship that was made out of fingernails. And that was the most disturbing present I have ever received. I know this is audio. I, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. How did you, what was your initial response? How did you so say anything to the guest? Like what? I worked at a dive bar in Las Vegas that was between a truck stop and a rent by the hour motel. So if you can imagine the type of clientele. Sure. Um, yeah. My, I, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm still speechless. I was just like, Oh, thank you. Like I'm Midwestern, you know, you can't not, not say thank you. Um, but yeah, shocked, horrified, awful. <laughs> wow. I, I <laughs> put it underneath the bar and walked away from it. Did you dispose of it? Is it at that same bar that you left it at? I don't know. I went back to that bar a few years ago. Um, it's now called the Rusty Spur. It used to be called Lucky's when I worked there. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's still under okay. there. <laughs> All right. I hope it's <laughs> decaying in some in some garbage can somewhere. Um, wow. I, was, I, so I really say, thought that question was going to always <laughs> best. Cash is always best. <laughs> what was the biggest tip you ever received? Um, I've received, I've received a couple thousand dollars before. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, wow. I really wasn't expecting the, the first part of the answer, Barbara. <laughs> I'm telling you, I always like to say like bartending and waiting tables. It's like the comment section of a Facebook post. It is oh random. It is horrifying it is shocking <laughs> oh man that that uh, i'm glad you put you put that that story in this podcast because you know if you put that in the book my gosh that, that what a what a draw um <laughs> next question barbara um if you're on death row and you only have you know a week to live what would be your death row meal and or drink Ooh, my death row meal that's such a good question. It'd probably be like nachos, like per like, but the perfect plate of nachos, right? Where every single chip is perfectly layered with all the right ingredients. Yeah, that would that would definitely be my death row meal. Right on, right on. My my wife would probably say the same thing because she always craves nachos <laughs> for some reason. So you guys, yeah. Now I know what to order for both of you. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> one of the last questions I have for you, Barbara, what is the biggest misconception with uh, SIPs, with service industry professionals? Biggest misconception. I would say that, th that they're moral or ambition failures or that they're uneducated, right? I think there's this notion that it's a low skill job or that these people are, are not, that there's not service behind the scenes. Mm. Um, and so 
yeah, I, I think it's a highly educated and highly skilled workforce. So that's, I think, the biggest misconception. Well, you know, I, myself as a friend and, you know, fellow pod, you know, podcast and financial, you know, personal finance enthusiast, Barbara, you've done an amazing job with your book tipped. Um, you know, I'm going to put the link for people to go ahead and buy, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of copies <laughs> from, from this, um, you know, let's leave it off and close out where they, where can they find you? And, uh, just a little bit about yourself as well. Okay. That, that was so much fun. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you for asking that. Cause I always forget to answer. So people can find the book on Amazon. They can just type in tipped or tipped finance or tipped book. Um, people can follow along on my journey, uh, over on Instagram at tipped finance. I like to make financial literacy really fun. I like to make memes. I'm also, I've also been doing stand up, So I've been posting some of my stand up clips about personal finance, um, which has been really fun. Uh, I'm also on TikTok and Twitter, but just not as frequent on those two mediums. And if you're interested in knowing more or doing some one-on-one coaching, or you want me to come to your bar or club or restaurant to do a money talk, you can reach out to me at www.tippedfinance.com. Thank you again. And uh, we'll be hearing from you soon. Thanks, Justin. Have a great day. 